0: We're talking a lot of the time about options, not investments. Some people think you've got to throw a million bucks at something to figure out if it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. That's an investment. You invest a million dollars after you have a decent sense that that's a a decent idea, unless you're talking about a giant portfolio. Most of us aren't talking about a giant portfolio. VCs can afford to do that. Founders probably can't.
1: I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things.
0: Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Wella, and today I have the rare treat of having my co-founder and brother from another mother, Chris Percompass. Chris, thanks for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me. This This is is awesome.
1: just kind of a funny little intersection here, man. Uh, I've been doing this podcast for a minute now. We haven't had the chance to chat, and I'm super stoked because there's a lot that's going on in the business right now, and it's a great moment to do a little bit of reflection. So on occasion, I get the question of how do Chris and Jordan know each other? How would you answer that question, man? How do we know each other?
0: So we met both working for a book publishing company in uh, San Antonio, Texas, back in, what would it be? 2008-ish, 2006? Something like that right. Yeah. yeah, so we met. You'd been working there for a little bit. I worked there for about a year. After that, we both had an opportunity to go mentor under uh, entrepreneur up in Dallas who was running a venture-backed HOA management company. So we went and worked with him in the business for about six months. And um, he was really, really awesome and helpful um, in early influence on our entrepreneurial journey. We both uh, went up there because he was uh, mentoring guys that wanted to go into business. We both knew we were interested in that. We didn't really know what we were getting into.
1: We Um, never do, right?
0: Right. So that was pretty, pretty uh, formational.
1: I, th- I think that takes us right up about to us actually starting a company that was kind of some of the background of our common company and then at that point my recollection or at least the story that I tell myself it's always interesting to ask yourself what actually happened and what's like an idea or a concept that you latched onto and you you just say repeatedly but the story that I tell it and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong story I I recall was that mentor at the end of that program, more or less kind of pushing us out and saying, go figure it out. Let's see if you have any chops. Let's see if it's all talk. And this guy had mentored a lot of people before, and I'm sure he's mentored a lot of people prior. There's gotta be a pretty high failure rate at that early stage of entrepreneurship where it's somebody that's had no ventures. It's not like mentoring somebody on like the third or fourth jump. Like they're just thinking about getting into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know my advice about getting onto entrepreneurship. Terrible way to make money. (laughs) Terrible way to make money. Generally don't do it. And an entrepreneur says, well, screw you. I'm gonna do it anyway. And that's an entrepreneur. And that's exactly what you and I did. And we proceeded to just dive headlong into, really proving out the idea that entrepreneurship is a bad way to make money and turn it into a textbook use case, I, I would say. We, we spent a couple of years there where we really did like a Harvard case study on how not to make money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We, it feels in hindsight like we made most of the mistakes that we could possibly afford to make and hmm. still come out the other side with you know a viable business. Yeah, It really shaped my perspective on how much you can learn when you are not in the trenches actually doing it. Mm. So when I think about what I want to pass on to my kids with, with entrepreneurship is mainly that hands-on experience of actually doing it. Because I think that the um, six months of training that we got, we went through basically Harvard case studies on a lot of different topics. Some of them were immediately relevant, but a lot of them, we you know missed the lessons that were there until we had actually made the mistake and then it was like blatantly obvious what Wade had been trying to mm-hmm. teach us. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that means that we just were incapable of learning any other way except through the hard school of experience, but it certainly felt that way.
1: I think there was something in that for me. I've gotten that from my family on occasion that, you know, yeah, it seems like you like doing things the hard way. That there's an element of truth. I'm really, I read a lot, I'm obsessed with learning, but there is, and particularly with my temperament, I like to learn in motion, which necessarily involves some some eggs breaking along the mm-hmm. way of, in, of making an omelet. Um, so part of the difference between you and I is our temperament, not only our functional focus, day to day, but the temperament that we bring to the business that has been both the source of a lot of consternation over the years and also brought a lot of joy. How would you articulate our differing temperament?
0: It's kind of hard to put into words because it's really deep experience by now. We've been working together for more than 10 years and it's been a really rich and fruitful relationship. Um, I think some of the highlights are just the, um, the energy and enthusiasm that you bring to the business, and the um, systematic, logical approach that I bring to the business. So, mm-hmm. you know, change. It would be an oversimplification, but there's quite a bit of truth in, the, in it that you have been the driving change agent in the business, and I've been the organizing force that has you know created a lot of the systems that allow us to execute on the vision that you have. So. We've eventually um, adopted, you know, ran across and adopted the EOS framework. And our relationship, in many ways, reflects the visionary and integrator um, relationship that he talks about.
1: It's interesting to me that for everything I've done in my career, I don't know what it's like to be a solo founder. Started a number of different businesses, mm-hmm. never done that. Right. There, and I don't think that's a coincidence. There's something, joy, there's joy, a deep joy and satisfaction in the co collaboration of working together and seeing people evolve and having somebody to not just commiserate with, but having somebody to celebrate the wins with, somebody to uh, hold you accountable and push back and reflect back both the best and the worst. And I think it's really mostly the best of like, I have my ideals for myself of what I'm trying to achieve. And then I have my practical actions. And in the course of this relationship, I get feedback and that i get feedback from a peer that would be difficult to duplicate otherwise that's my pitch if i have any mm-hmm. for hat for for partnerships fraught with pitfalls a lot of things can go wrong i think in general partnerships tend to be viewed suspiciously for folks that haven't done it what's your take on partnerships for somebody that hasn't done it
0: yeah a lot of different thoughts there um I agree, I think that it has uh, really broadened this perspective that our company has had. We talked really a lot in the early days about the RDF, the reality distortion field that entrepreneurs bring to the table mm-hmm. and how much of a trap that really is. Um, the way I've communicated it to some people is that um, one of the big challenges that entrepreneurs have to overcome is to really learn and get it you know, deep down in your bones that the reality outside of your head Matters a lot more than what you think it is. So the difference between reality as it is and reality as it exists in your perception is really important to, f- to tease out. You have to figure out what the world is really like. You know, t- will people actually buy that product that you think is so cool? Um, so so much of customer discovery involves figuring out what the market really needs and what people will really pay for. And it's never um, you never get it right the first time. So I think what a partnership can do, especially a partnership between people that don't necessarily look at things the same way or think the same way, is that it can help you triangulate on reality a lot better. Mm -hmm. You may not see things the same way, but it can help you actually see reality more accurately. Mm -hmm. And I think that's happened for you and me.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's been part of the intrigue that, to the extent that I've had multiple partners, is it's further extended out that metaphor. When you have five people in the room all looking at the same thing and they're all saying it's something different, what it did for me was like, huh, well, you know, it's possible that multiple people could be wrong. That's an interesting, and I could be one of them. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting possibility. If it's just you and one other person at times, you feel almost compelled to conclude that of this sample set, someone must be right. When you get enough perspectives, it's, it's more conceivable that everybody is wrong and at least it reinforces the idea to hold loosely, whatever it is that you think, and to back it up with the most substantive proof, Mm -hmm. which in business is money at the end of the day.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Entrepreneurship makes you think really hard about what validation actually looks like and it forces you to test your ideas so something that we um, really invested in a lot in the early days is um, how do we validate that we're on the right path mm-hmm. because ultimately it's a pathfinding expedition when you start a company and when you start from square one especially like we did with um, first you know our first business and then you know figuring out how, what lead simple was going to look like was a you know a zero to one kind of pathfinding um expedition and uh, we really needed to be clear on what that was, uh, what, it, what did reality actually say about the opportunity and how we were going to pursue it.
1: As you think about the house, side of the house that you live on at Lead Simple, it's on the product side, it's on the engineering side. And we've worked in a, a very resource-starved environment. We've never had a moment where we just raised 20 million bucks and might as well blow some money on having, you know, concession machines and a big fancy office, et cetera. Mm-hmm. My reflections on on bootstrapping are that it has forced so much innovation and I have so much gratitude. I don't know that I'll do that for my entire career, but I have a lot of gratitude for the ingenuity that it's forced. And it I think it's given me a sense of looking at somebody bigger, objectively bigger in terms of resources and, and just reflexively being like, I could do that. I could, I I don't need to have, I could do more with less. That's kind of what it's inculcated in me. It's been painful at times, but I'm, I'm really grateful for that. What are your reflections on bootstrapping?
0: I think when you combine bootstrapping with the lean startup movement, which we really invested a lot in understanding in the early days it was mm-hmm. popular then too i think mm-hmm. we caught kind of the second wave of it mm-hmm. steve blank um the main main proselytized the, main thing that he um was the echoes of his uh contributions to it were still happening but eric race and others and uh, i think ash, ash were mm-hmm. were taking that further and we were really listening to them so ideas like um you have to get outside the building the truth is outside the building. Mm. It's not in your brainstorming session. It's mm-hmm. outside the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then running a lot of small experiments to validate your ideas before you invest more resources behind them. Mm-hmm. That was very popular in a venture-backed startup model. And we were applying it inside a bootstrapped paradigm. I don't think a lot of people were applying it in a bootstrapped paradigm, but we were. And the um, that... Lean startup movement has faced some criticism over time for moving slowly. Um, and I think that is probably even more so the case inside a bootstrapped environment where you're not you don't have the fire hose of money to throw at problems once you start getting the kind of validation that you expected to find. So I think some of the criticisms of the lean startup movement were probably true for Lead Simple in the early days. Um, we did camp out on problems until we got them really dialed, mm-hmm. and it had. A, there are a lot of benefits to doing that, um, but there are some downsides to it as well. Uh, I remember, you know, not a very popular, but kind of a tongue-in-cheek alternative when lean startup was popular was this idea of the fat startup. Yeah, right. And people were advocating for no. You need to don't just build an MVP, not just a minimum viable product. Build something thick. Mm-hmm. And and meaty, um, but yeah. Overall, I'm really, really still positive on the methodology of, of uh, customer discovery and lean startup. Um, but I think it can have some pitfalls
1: as well. That's a great tour of ideas that have in, impacted us. What else comes to mind? That that certainly is one. There's different like epochs in the company and epochs of of us learning as entrepreneurs. Right. What other big ideas? Hooked you beyond just being enamored, but have had like staying power for you?
0: So, quite a few things I think that have developed in our approach and in my thinking on it um, have to do with uh, like first order and second order problems. Oh, please we, unpack that. We talked a lot in the early days about whether we were going to be a horizontal mm-hmm. SaaS company or whether we were going to be vertical SaaS. Mm-hmm. And I think we were vertical SaaS before vertical SaaS was cool. It was hard to find a lot of people advocating for the vertical sas approach even though that is the approach that we took with lead simple we mm-hmm. decided to pick one industry and build first a crm for that space and then to extend that into a lot of different product offerings and there were a lot of um, sound business arguments against that for example you could say that the horizontal SaaS company has a much larger larger total addressable market that they can amortize their development across. So they can sell the same software to a much larger number of customers, and that's going to be more economically efficient. Um, they also don't have to go necessarily as deep on how many features that they build, whereas in our case, we needed to build CRM, then we needed to keep extending the product. So it's a pretty product-heavy approach. Um, But over time, what's proven out is that verticals actually do have things that make them unique. And it's very hard with the horizontal software product to actually make it fit those niches very well. Um, So I think what happened initially with uh, Salesforce and then even as recently as HubSpot is you had companies that were able to take a really good swing at solving the most general basic problems For a large number of industries and to do that probably about as well as you could expect a company to be able to do that without having a specific industry in mind Mm -hmm. but what's left is still a lot of a lot of complexity and um, pain points that are left unsolved Mm -hmm. and unsatisfied by that kind of generic solution and i think what we're seeing is that software is still eating the world And there is still a significant amount of space for companies to come in and say, no, we're going to focus on this space, this set of problems, and create a lot of value there. And when you do that, when you really camp on a space, you create a solution that is superior and more attractive to customers within that space than the horizontal um, SaaS products. So we've actually seen... Um, primarily it's it's HubSpot that we have displaced inside of property management. They um, did get some traction that we saw inside the SFR space, and uh, in many cases, companies have been dissatisfied with that and, and chosen our CRM because it just works better for, for that space. So that's kind of the first half of it, is the horizontal and vertical SaaS distinction. But I think uh, a couple unintended things happened when we were having that discussion. One of them is that we hadn't fully decided whether we were going to commit to the vertical in the early days of Lead Simple. We were not sure if this market really was big enough for us to do what we wanted to do in, in this space. And because of that, we thought about, um, well, what other use cases is Lead Simple going to need to support? And what that does, I think, when you when you're building a piece of software and you're considering multiple use cases at the same time is it forces you to dig a little bit deeper than you would if you Mm, said we're mm. just going to focus on this one problem Mm. and what that meant is that we um, were i think i I can't take too much credit for it but in hindsight i think what we were doing um, is we were focused on the second order problem the first order problem is really obvious the surface it's like it's like um, leasing it's like maintenance or something like that Um, but we always had multiple use cases in mind when we were designing software and maybe the bootstrapping thing maybe the lean startup thing always made us go for these you know three birds with one stone kind of solutions that's my bent definitely when i write software i want it to be as Mm -hmm, useful mm -hmm. as possible for as many use cases as possible so that's a real turn on for me to think about um, uh, when i'm solving a, a problem but however we we Backed into that, we built the software to to solve problems that were like one level deeper than the presenting issue within the space. And so we kind of straddled the way that horizontal SaaS companies think about issues and the way that vertical SaaS companies tend to think about them. And as a result, when we needed to pivot, when we finally uh, decided that CRM was not going to be the extent of what we offered, we were going to extend it into operations, what we had built in CRM, actually had a ton of applicability to the operations space. We hadn't painted ourselves into a corner because the the solutions that we had designed had a lot of applicability in other areas of the business. And since then we've just been um, recognizing that and building, continuing to aim at those second order problems.
1: Cross applicability extensibility those are some ways we've talked about it previously. Mm-hmm. you talked about the visionary integrator dynamic and me sitting in the vis- sitting in the visionary seat globally but on the product side, that was your vision. What you just explained we could talk about it much at much more in depth but that idea made sense. in fact, I think it's fairly obvious once you explain it to somebody but you had real like conviction about it and part of that conviction was that you were on product and engineering. One of the best things that can happen to an engineer is to support their own code because it means that they really think through the consequences of maintenance. Do you feel like that back to the idea of bootstrapping, you being the whole life cycle of product, was that like a natural forcing function to, to increase your internal conviction about what is otherwise a fairly you know good but obvious idea?
0: I think it helps a lot. Being in the code in the early days of the company is probably a superpower for a founder for a period of time, and it can really guide the choices that a company makes around the product. Um, somebody really within the company needs to have the agency and the understanding of the big picture when it comes to how your architecture is designed and what it's, what's possible, really. I, I think that's the, the primary opportunity that that creates is understanding what is possible. Um, you know, people say that having a technical co-founder is a prerequisite for starting a, a tech company. And I would tend to agree that that's a, a difficult thing to replace. Um, you at least need a early employee to be that kind of it's like uh, doing overarching, a medical,
1: a medical startup with no doctors, right. you know, just kind of right. seems a little sketchy. hmm
0: but we still think in terms of full stack. Oh, um, 100%. The uh, influences in terms of how we develop product that we've uh, really bought into over the years is that uh, the engineers should have a high degree of agency in product conversations. I really like the book. Um,
1: Ask a Developer.
0: Yeah, Ask Your Developer, which really talks about how, how much creativity some companies leave on the table, unharnessed, when they treat the engineers as ticket takers. Mm, and, you mm. know, just giving them fully spec'd out projects that haven't had feedback from the engineering team, that's a real miss um, and something that we slipped into a little bit a few years ago when we were getting so much customer feedback. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a few mi- mistakes that if we were making at that time, um, a lot of companies fall into this habit of shipping sand. You're not shipping rocks anymore. You're shipping sand. And sand is, you know, little, um, small Um, pieces of feedback that customers are looking for. But because you're using an Agile or Scrum format, it's hard to see kind of what's the big picture of what we're working on or shooting for as a company. Um, So the model that we've adopted more recently is the shape-up process, which is promoted by the guys over at Basecamp. Mm -hmm. And that both enlists um, the engineers earlier and higher in the product management process. It helps you focus on bigger, more strategic projects um, and just enlists a lot more creativity from the team.
1: I'm still enamored with the first order, second order distinction. I feel so strongly that that's at the core of the strong positioning we're at now, that what we build was like an agnostic bag of Legos that was in the context of SFR, third party residential property management. So specialized enough to do that, but not more than that. That was hard. It would have been easier to build specialized stuff, pick one use case, go all in, specialized tooling, custom objects, map towards that. We didn't do that. I'm super grateful for that. I want to pivot to another concept that's been really impactful, and that is scoping. We talk about it internally. We haven't solved it, haven't mastered it, but there's a lot of awareness of it. It influences, for me, it influences on the personal side as well. I, talk, I take that concept wherever I go because it allows you to anticipate in advance when something is going to break down. I frequently find myself in situations where a problem comes up, something goes off the rails, and we look back and we say, could have known. With more forethought, could have seen that coming. That's painful to me. That's the essence of what I would consider an unforced error. It's not that we're not going to make mistakes, but if it's a mistake that it reasonably could have been known with some more planning, that's tough to stomach. I don't let that awareness prevent me from learning in motion. Like I said, I'm, I'm prone to that, but I got, I've gotten so much value out of this idea of scoping. Could you take a crack at just kind of unpacking what that looks like?
0: Yeah. So we found that there's a difference between scoping and estimating mm-hmm. early on. We had quite a bit of tension, some between you and me, some between me and the engineering team over estimates and how accurate can you get an engineering estimate? A lot of companies have run into this. There's a whole movement of no estimates, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about this where um, engineering managers basically are trying to communicate to the higher-ups that no, this this cannot be estimated beforehand because it is a creative process that no one has done before. It's not, when you're asking engineers to solve the best kind of problems, which are the creative strategic mm -hmm. problems, Mm -hmm. by definition, most of it is, uncovered is is still covered it's not uncovered and it's unknown mm-hmm. in the early mm-hmm. days of the project so at what point are you going to know how long it's going to take to finish it it's like you know at the point we're 66 percent through at that point we'll know that's the experience of being an engineer that i can you know deeply relate to um but the business does need to know how much are we spending on this project mm-hmm. and how soon are we going to be able to move on to the next thing roi and and so you know as a technical co-founder, I've had to straddle both problems, the business's needs and the engineering, the uh, reality of all the things that we don't know, the unknown unknowns when you start a project. So the way that I would distinguish scoping from estimating is that scoping is not trying to answer the question, how long this will take. Scoping is trying to answer the question, what is involved here? And what is the riskiest part about it? Um, I'm borrowing quite a bit from the shape-up method. Uh, when I So not all these ideas are original to me. But the idea in the shape-up method is that the business decides that a problem is sufficiently valuable that we want to invest some resources into exploring it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that we do to explore it is we define a problem statement, which would include the customer pain or the pain to the business, the missed opportunity, etc. and then a solution statement. What do we think we might do to solve this problem? And then what you do is you unpack what do we think we have to build to solve the problem the way that we've approached it? And the focus should be on the 80-20. You know, 80-20 principle says that, you know, tw- you know, 20% of the work provides 80% of the value. You can apply it in a lot of different ways. Probably 20% of the project is going to take 80% of the time, actually. And those are the things that you try to uncover at that stage. Key risks, key rabbit holes. Where, Where could this project go sideways? Where are we very likely going to spin our wheels or waste time? And if you identify those things up front, then you can start to work on them to try to bring the risk level of the project down. Because the reason the estimates don't work is that there's too much uncontrolled risk Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in in the project so Mm -hmm. the more risks you can identify and take off the table the clearer the scope gets and the point is not to uh, specify every last detail for the engineers you're just trying to take enough of the risk off the table that you have a project that's has a reasonable chance of success within a relatively short period of time because the devil's in the details. If you think that you can estimate a project that lasts longer than eight weeks, very likely there's just too much unknowns that are, that are in that um, project for you to be accurate. That's why in estimate world, when, when engineers are asked to estimate things, the number scale that we're allowed to use usually is a Fibonacci scale. So it just you know, the gaps between the numbers go up dramatically, the bigger it gets. It's trying to demonstrate that like, we are spitballing here. If we're talking about a, you know, 33 dev point or 64 dev point or 128 dev point, those are my options. I I don't get to pretend like I have a lot of certainty about a project that's that size. So the shape up method um, argues that you should be um, cutting the projects down to a scope where it is has a reasonable degree of certainty that you can achieve it within a certain period of time. And then what we do with those, they call them pitches, is we take a list of pitches and we've de-risked them. We've scoped them to the degree that we think that we can get them done within a certain number of weeks. And then we decide as a leadership team, what pitches we are comfortable betting on right now. So if a pitch is going to take four weeks, it's going to take four weeks of our development schedule to do, we'll put it onto the roadmap. And it's we're committing, you know, four weeks or however many weeks to that project. The developers have that much time to finish it. And we try to allow enough time so that those projects can be completed um, because we are actually going to stop the clock and move on to the next project at the end. That's as another, a forcing function. As a forcing function. So we really do try to only allocate the allotted time. If a project runs over, by default, it gets canceled.
1: That was incredibly helpful. That was a really succinct articulation of this idea. You mentioned eight weeks as being a threshold one of my takeaways from our conversations is that whatever you estimate and you'll be off in estimate a week you're off in a week estimate you know we had a point one time this was a key inflection point after that horizontal versus vertical debate when we committed to pressing deeper into the vertical we did a refactor which is not the same thing as a rewrite rewrite from scratch refactor take the same underlying tech but incrementally piecemeal rework it to its, its proper positioning What was that refactor? What was the timeline? How long did that take? 18, 24 months?
0: Well, it depends on when you start the clock. Um, We did a lot of research on the front side. So there was a lot of uh, product team work deciding uh, what we needed to do to the product as part of that pivot. That research probably extended over about 8 to 12 months of really in-depth research. And it was a big pivot because we had um, built a pretty flexible product, but it definitely could not accommodate the the functionality that we were about to demand of it. Um, So we got pretty clear on that, and that spec, I would say, was probably about as clear as it could have been before we broke ground on it. When we broke ground, we didn't really know how long that was going to take. We had a really small team. We had two engineers working on it. I was working on it as well. Um, so really small team. Thankfully, still relatively concise code base. But that code base had been around for a while. So in the process, we needed to upgrade a lot of things. Um, we also chose to re-architect some of the core um, backbone uh, parts of our tech stack to support the new the. Um, uh, new platform that we were building and we're talking about the workflow process a bunch of stuff that nobody could see absolutely so Mm -hmm. a bunch of refactoring behind the scenes moving code around reorganizing new api new you know entirely new front end tech tech stack
1: months of work with no external customer visible customer facing
0: exactly so that took about a quarter i think to start to put some of those things in place um then we started working on the front end and a key decision that we made that i still feel very uh confident in and good about, was that we were not going to build a new version of the software side by side with the old one. We had seen many cases of companies doing that and having a really rocky migration path for customers moving from the old version of the software to the new version. Um, data migration is a problem. We knew that there were going to be um, requests on the new software. And one of the issues with the um, with the rewrite and the migration path is that customers have to decide when they are going to flip the switch. And once they flip the switch, they cannot go back. We didn't want to create that situation. So what that meant is that we needed to create an entirely new front end for the app using the new tech stack. But it needed to exist in parallel with the old version so that people could switch back and forth easily. So they could start using the new one. If they didn't like it, they could go back. And we had a lot of people do that. Um, We initially thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to put a bunch of new features in and cut out some of the things that we didn't like about the old version. Turns out that most of our customers asked us to put back pretty much everything that was missing, everything that we thought that we could do without. People said, no, I liked it better on the old version. And they had a good argument for it. We created unintentionally extra click paths, you know, things that took two clicks before now took four or five clicks to do. Um, and it simplified the UI, but people really did want to see that information. So that next iteration of you know, replacing the UI was just a matter of creating feature parity with the old version. We didn't add a lot of new features. We had to make sure that all the old features still worked and the um, information was still there. And then from there, we had what we called phase three and phase four, which involved adding the new stuff that we wanted to add. So it had been probably six months of work getting, you know, phase one and two complete. And then phase three and four took about the rest of that year where we were able to actually get into the new new stuff that we were looking forward to rolling out.
1: So it's interesting hearing you say that we didn't know how long it was going to take. That's a great segue to the business side. You're talking about the product considerations. On the business side, that is definitely not what I remember. I remember exactly how long it was supposed to take and it didn't take that long. And part of my growth- took longer,
0: to be clear, right?
1: Yes, (laughs) because anybody was thinking it took less time. Yes, it took longer. Part of my growth as leader was realizing when I am using my force of personality, my status in the food chain to extract commitments, promises, and information that cannot reasonably actually be given with any level of accuracy. There's a whole dynamic there. I can, I can go to almost anybody in the organization and start insisting upon needing information and promises about when is this gonna be done? When is that gonna happen? And it takes some governance and wisdom to know that's just no, it's the question that's wrong. The question is flawed. And so back to scoping, Scoping at at its essence, the way I describe it, I'm curious to get your feedback, the way I describe it is chunking down the work into small enough increments that the atomized components can reasonably be estimated with a high degree of accuracy, so that then in aggregate, the totality of the project has a much higher degree of accuracy. And that's what we would call a high integrity commitment. I'm borrowing a Marty Kagan concept. When we initially talked, I pressed you for some information and some answers. We're gonna take, where it's gonna take all this time, well, exactly how long. But we weren't on the same page about high integrity commitment. You know, you, you were giving me a, a guesstimation. But by, once we had passed the guesstimation, the temperature started to go up in the room because I'm mm-hmm. not technical. All I have is is you telling me how long you think it's gonna take and then it takes longer. And then the question in my mind is like, well, what if it keeps taking longer? What if it's never done? You mentioned that we didn't do a rewrite and you had some concerns about that, one of the concerns about rewrites is a death spiral. You never get out of it. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And between the fact that we had no revenue coming from it, which was really the problem, and if we were getting incremental revenue in proportion to how far we were done, then it would have increased the leash. But we were now in this cycle where customers didn't get any benefit, which is the reason we didn't get any additional revenue. That was tough, man. That was a real growth moment for me as a, as a non-technical co-founder and leader.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We still have phase two t-shirts that I, I love. We should do a reprint of those. Although I hope we never have another moment like that. It was the phase company. phase three trail, right? No, it's, it's, it was the phase two trail.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, okay.
0: And when I wore those shirts, you know, in Washington during COVID, it, it people thought I was making a political Light. comment because <laughs> phase, we had phase reopening in Washington. Oh, uh, wow. um, But yeah, the phase two um, trail, you know, was Oregon Trail reference, and
1: that's what the T-shirt had on it. When you're going through hell,
0: keep going. You've died of dysentery. Pretty, pretty fun time.
1: That's what it felt like. But eventually, we came out of it. Eventually, we shipped something, and there was so much pent up angst of like, just get it in the hands of the consumers. And as it happened, COVID did actually drop and we accelerated it, we just pushed it out the door into user's hands, it was not any kind of a best practice. I would, there was about a hundred beta testers on it, a a fraction of those with no training, no hand holding, no walking, we're just gonna start dreaming and scheming about what it could do. And even though that the execution of that launch per se was not something we would repeat, not a best practice, that kind of was the seedbed. How, how raw can you give a feature to people and still have them be excited, delighted, and to start ideating and create new possibilities? People, they received the bag of Legos and they started assembling stuff and it wasn't the stuff that we told them to because we really didn't give them. We had some ideas for use cases, but mm-hmm. that to me is the is the free market side of what we're doing that defines extensibility is that you have use cases in mind And then you have what people actually do. And because they have the ultimate proximity to their problems, they are dramatically more qualified to build those solutions. Yeah, that's absolutely right.
0: It's really fun to see.
1: So fast forwarding to today, now we have a team of 25. We have more devs than we've had in the past and the landscape has kind of changed. It's been interesting to be working on something that every month and every year things have always been going better than they have previously. So it's steadily improved, not always at the rate that we would have liked. We would have loved to see and everything go much faster than it has. But I feel like the work that we've done in our career in some ways, it's kind, of, it's kind of felt like compound interest to me. Have you like, do, do is that relatable to you? Like the compounding factor?
0: Yeah, for sure. Lead Simple has definitely been a up into the right proposition but also slow enough. Like I think a lot of business people have this experience because you're working so hard in the business. You're focused almost exclusively on the gap, not the gain. Yeah, exactly. And and it's really easy to not give yourself any credit for the progress.
1: Well said, yeah. And the gap, I don't think that goes away. I think that's the, the thing to accept as an entrepreneur. It's okay to want to quit. It's. I mean, it's okay for me. I've had to give myself permission that on a weekly basis, you can have this thought of like, "Oh man, this is hard. You know, this this isn't working. That's not broken." I can see with like X-ray vision all the things that are wrong, and that is both the blessing and cursing of being a founder. I really feel like me and you have this uh, this especially cruel and vicious vision into like every micro fault that could be seen. We can see and wisdom is knowing what to bring it up. And it it's, certainly isn't everything. It's a, it's a minority of things that are worth harping on because our, our attention, that's where the money is at, is like aggregating our attention on the small number of problems that actually matter. And it's so easy to get diluted in this game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and growing pains are real. Growth breaks everything. It also solves everything, as they say. So you're, when you're leaning into growth, you're leaning into problems and leaning into
1: pain. That's true. Every time. And I think certainly that's relevant for, for processes, right? Being a process workflow shop, it's easy to, to enable the idea of getting your processes done.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because if you keep doing things the way that you're doing them today, chances are that's a lot easier than trying to change the way that you're doing it.
1: Exactly. It, 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 property management is cool as an adjacency because it's recurring revenue. And certainly in the SaaS game, it, the metaphor holds the same. You and I could get really good and really smart at managing if we just stayed where we're at. Like if we just parked right here for three, four years, I mean, it would this would feel comfortable, easy, very familiar, but it's the constant growth that it's like, yet again, mm-hmm. I've never managed, you know, at to do XYZ with XYZ challenges and problems. And so it's that perpetual white belt mentality that really is kind of the pull to stay in the game for me anyway. I need that kind of stimulation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that feels just slightly connected to another idea that's been pretty influential for me over the last few years. Um, And I think, you know, probably for the whole company. It's um, covered a lot in the book by Nassim Taleb, uh, Mm Anti-Fragile. And it's the idea of optionality. Um, The way I think it's related to what you're referring to there is it's um he's got the idea of a ratchet in there and i've i've grown to view success as something that you want to operate like a ratchet right it's hard to get over the next click Mm -hmm. but then once you get it locked in Mm -hmm. you get to move up to the next next phase um but the idea of optionality and the strategy that he he talks about is a strategy for working with an uncertain world and it doesn't require you to know the future which is the awesome thing about it it simply requires you to on the one hand take care of your downside risk be really good at taking care of the downside risk particularly the risk of ruin Mm. so you need to be watching your downside you need to be watching the things that could what could clean you out Um, and as much as possible take that risk off the table so extreme Conservatism on the one hand Avoid is dying. really helpful. Don't die first. Don't die. It's kind of like Warren Buffett's rule. Don't you know? First rule of investing: don't lose money. Second rule of investing: don't lose money. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the um, first rule is control your downside risk. Don't die. Um, but then he pairs that with something that's really important, which is the idea that you should pursue as much optionality as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you could think of that as like pursuing opportunity, but it's really optionality. The way he he talks about it is exposing yourself Mm. to as much opportunity as possible. Mm. Um, Mm. And so it's your exposure to risk on the one hand and your exposure to opportunity and your ability to navigate your exposures. Mm -hmm. That is really key. And if you're able to control your exposure to the things that would kill you while maximizing your exposure to the things that will or may prove to be really advantageous, that's what allows an entrepreneur really in any setting to capitalize on ideas that are obvious, once they're obvious. Um, That's one of the really breakthrough ideas there for me is that um, we're talking a lot of the time about options, not investments. Some people think you've got to throw a million bucks at something to figure out if it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. That's an investment. You invest a million dollars after you have a decent sense that that's a, a decent idea. Unless you're talking about a giant portfolio. Most of us aren't talking about a giant portfolio. VCs can afford to do that. Founders probably can't. And so what you're trying to do is expose yourself to lower cost options or opportunities. And then you exercise and you double down on the ones that prove to be profitable and good ideas.
1: Obvious opportunities is the way I would put it. That's what I like, that's what I'm into. Obvious, give me obvious. Speculative, tricky. You can have, we've had some impulses in our career. We've had some sensibilities of like, I think the opportunity is over here. What I really like when I can get it is obvious. Like can I, the customer saying, please give it to me. I've asked so many times. There's a lot of us, we're raising our hands. We wanna pay, pay money. That's really what defines product market fit, is you're being strained just to keep up with demand. And as we keep growing, we go back and forth between exploration, thinking which is optionality, taking in a lot of different fact patterns and trying to find what the common threads are, where the opportunity is, and then exploitation of actually building. What I love about what we're doing is that there's a loop, that loop I just described, we get to keep going through over and over and over again. And I think that's what attracted me towards the vertical rather than horizontal. It's probably a false dichotomy. But I think that's what I intuited is that we would be able to go in this direction and to keep just extending the circle out further and further and further. So from my vantage point, things are going well. There's a lot of opportunity, I mean, it's a really exciting time for us as a company and for our team. And yet I don't look at anything that's happened and thinking like, well, we better really maximize that for the next couple of years because then it's going to kind of wind down. I mean, I just see an endless loop of expansive possibilities and the people that we serve are are hungry to have those efficiencies, to have that innovation. So it's a, it's a really exciting place to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm glad to have you on. appreciate you coming on. Um, we got to do this again, man. We got to make this like a regular thing here.
0: Sounds good. It would be fun.
1: <laughs> All right, man. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for listening at home and see you guys on the flip side. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me.